Panda acknowledges the traditional owners of the land where we work and live. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We celebrate the stories, culture and traditions of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders of all communities who also work and live on this land. Today's episode was produced on the lands of the Ghana, Gunai Kurnai, Jajawurung, Tungurung, Yagara and Yugarapul peoples. I managed to see a perinatal psychiatrist who was in Bendigo through the Raphael Centre and she was fantastic and she validated all my feelings and she put me back on my medication and then sent me off and things got better for a while. Um, But unfortunately, towards the end of the pregnancy, when I couldn't cope physically, I tried to get back in to see her and she'd left, which is a big issue in regional and, in, and rural areas. You know, you, you sometimes have a specialist and you sometimes don't. Uh, so she was the only one who was in the area and she left. So at that point, I'd just seen the obstetrician who hadn't asked me about my mental health and had basically just said, there's nothing wrong with you, you can go. And so I had another breakdown because the only good support that I had had gone. So that was hard as well. We all know that becoming a parent can be a lonely journey at the best of times. Even with visits from family and lasagna drop-offs from friends, there are still days where the isolation sets in. And if you're living in a town that's thousands of kilometres from your loved ones, it might feel impossible to reach out to them when you really need it. I'm Gia, and this is Survive and Thrive, a podcast from Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Australia. You might know them as Panda. There's so much to love about living outside the city. The small town sense of community, being closer to nature and embracing a slower paced life. But for new parents in regional areas who need mental health care or other specialist birthing support, the lack of options can put a real dampener on all things you love about where you live. Adelaide moved from Tasmania to regional Victoria not long before she fell pregnant. It was difficult and it was unexpected. Um, At that point, I'd been living up in the northwest of Tassie, so I'd been away from my family already for about three years. So I thought moving to, you know, another state, you know, it's still far away, but I thought it would be easy. I was prepared and it hit me a lot harder than I was expecting. Um, I didn't have any friends. I didn't know anyone in Bendigo except for my husband. And then you became pregnant when you were in Bendigo. How did you feel when you first found out that you were going to have a baby? Yeah, so we had made the choice to start trying. So when I first found out, I was super excited (laughs) and terrified. Um, You know, you're never sure how things are going to turn out, how it was going to affect my career, things like that. So I was scared, um, but the first few weeks were exciting um, until the hyperemesis hit. And that's when my mental health really started going downhill. Can you tell me a little bit about what that was like for you? It started off really mild and then it just built up. So for most of the first trimester, I was vomiting more than 10 times a day. I was finding it really distressing. Um, and I couldn't work. It was so bad and I was so fatigued, I just couldn't function. So I was at home by myself while my husband was at work, just lying in bed and vomiting and drinking Hydrolite. So 
that's when my mental health really started to struggle. I just got extremely depressed and then started getting more anxious as well about becoming a mother. Uh, just triggered, I guess, all those fears that were sitting in the background when I started to get depressed, um, worrying that I wasn't going to be a good mother, that the depression meant I wasn't going to bond with the baby. Yeah, just all those things suddenly <laughs> came to the forefront and I, I really went into a bad place at that time. I was classified as a higher risk um, of postnatal depression and what that meant was that instead of seeing midwives each visit, I would see the the doctors or an obstetrician. Um, but however they made that classification, they didn't put it clearly on the system that that's why I was made high risk. So I would be going to see the doctor every month and they'd say, why are you here? I don't know why I'm here. Like no one's told me why I'm here. It wasn't until I was, you know, in the third trimester that one of the nurses actually looked further into it and said, this is because of your mental health. And because nobody had actually looked, it meant that they weren't monitoring my mental health, which was the reason that I'd been made high risk. Nobody was really looking for it. That just sounds so frustrating. It doesn't sound like you felt heard or supported, which can have a really big impact. What other services were available to you in Bendigo? Yeah, so we do have some services, but I guess being in a regional area, we there's not a lot of choice. So I was seeing my GP and my GP was fine with my mental health when it was just mental health prior to the pregnancy. And then once I got pregnant, it's like he couldn't cope with that added layer. So all of his advice was just, this is what's best for the baby. And that wasn't what's best for me. So he wanted to stop my medications when I was already in a bad place. So, and I, I wanted to do what was best for the baby. So I did try that. And yeah, obviously that <laughs> did not go well for my mental health. So I also went through the hospital. We've got a mental health triage service and that was even worse. <laughs> that was probably the worst point was when I went to see this woman who said, but you planned the pregnancy. And I said, well, yes, I did want to get pregnant. She said, well, why are you depressed? I was like, well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why I'm depressed. Um, you know, I'm here for help. I'm not here to be told that my thoughts are not valid. And she said, well, when the baby gets here, you'll be happy. And in the meantime, we just need to stop all your medication. And I just, yeah, I just said, right, I'm, I'm getting out of here and I'm not coming back. <laughs> so, yeah, that was not not a great help to me. <laughs> um, and there, at that point, there weren't really any other services. Um, I think... Later on in the pregnancy, uh, I, I managed to see a perinatal psychiatrist who was in Bendigo through the Raphael Centre and she was fantastic and she validated all my feelings and she put me back on my medication and then sent me off and things got better for a while. Um, but unfortunately, towards the end of the pregnancy, when I couldn't cope physically, I tried to get back in to see her and she'd left which is a big issue in regional and, in, and rural areas. You know, you, you sometimes have a specialist and you sometimes don't. Uh, so she was the only one who was in the area and she left. And at that point, I'd just seen 
the obstetrician who hadn't asked me about my mental health and had basically just said, there's nothing wrong with you, you can go. And so I, <laughs> I had another breakdown because the only good support that I had had gone. So that was hard as well. Mm. What did you do then when you felt like you were doing it on your own? Who did you turn to in that, that moment? have a panic attack in the waiting room at the hospital. Got some hugs from some strangers. The admin team got me back in. Um, and that's when we kind of discussed going into the, the mother and baby unit of the hospital for my mental health. So I did do a tour of that and get assessed by some of the doctors who said, due to my mental health, I could be admitted. Mm. Um, but I, in the end, I decided that my biggest fear was was being isolated. I was having to give up my work. None of my friends had kids, so I didn't think that our friendships would be the same after I had a kid. And being locked in a ward in the hospital away from my husband and my friends, I thought was not what was best for me. So I went home. I think I put in my notice for work. I said, I'm not physically able to work anymore. And I just had to mentally come to terms with that on my own, you know, talking to my husband, um, talking to my parents on the phone and planning for them to come up as soon as they could to visit from Tasmania. Um, but I'd run out of local resources at that point. My in-laws were, were a really good support. They, um, although they're in Canberra, so they're not any closer than my family, but they are semi-retired. So they could come down for a week at a time, just stay at our house and take some of the load off, you know, the cooking, the cleaning, and just give me some company, which was really nice. So he could spend a bit of time with me. Um, but really it was it was work friends and I just had to, to reach out to them and tell them how I was feeling and what my fears were. And most of them really were re reassuring. You know, they would say things wouldn't change after <laughs> after I had my babies, and that we would still hang out. And just spending as much time with them as I could. Sometimes I'd go in on their lunch breaks and have lunch, or I'd have a coffee with them while they're at work, so I could still see people and get that um, that friendship time that I really needed. Because I found with my mental health. I know I need to have friends around that I can talk to and really be open with. How much do you think your social isolation, particularly from your family, impacted your mental health when you were pregnant? A huge amount, yep. I know they say that once you have a baby, you get closer to your mother. <laughs> and my relationship with my mother, I think it has been rough over the years. We've both got strong personalities, um, we're both perfectionists and a bit controlling. So, you know, for our relationship, um, before I had kids, I think a bit of distance was actually really good. And then as soon as I got pregnant, I was like, I want my mum. <laughs> She's been mm. through this and she knows, you know, well, she might not know what to do, but she knows what she did. And um, just that basic level of understanding. Um, so I really missed that. I'm tearing up. Yeah. I wish she was closer. Yeah. That's all right. Take your time. It's Just thinking about it. I still miss it. Yeah. Um, sorry. With my second yeah. baby now. No, FaceTime yeah. isn't, doesn't quite cut it, does it? It's not quite a hug yeah. that you yes. sometimes you just need. You just want your mum's hug. Exactly. So, mm. 
yes, my mum's now used to the phone calls. It's either a video call because um, baby's got lots of smiles or it's um, me calling up, bawling my eyes out mm-hmm. because of something. So <laughs> she's never quite sure what she's going to get when she answers the phone now. Oh, well, I'm glad that you've been able to, yeah, improve your relationship with her and it sounds like, yeah, there's a lot of love there. Definitely. So <laughs> that's that's wonderful. Yes. <laughs> um, how are you feeling now, I guess, after having your second baby? Did you put in a plan to improve your mental health before your second second one came along? Yeah, it was really, really different this time round. Um, so we were trying for a lot longer, whereas with Elizabeth, I got pregnant the first time we tried, which was almost scary because I thought things would take a bit longer and I'd have more time to get ready. So this time... I was not going to let anyone muck around with my medication. Um, I was going to put my foot down. I knew what was best for me for my mental health was staying on that medication. So I'd learned that lesson. I definitely stayed in touch with my psychologist. So I was really lucky. I got a great psychologist when I was pregnant with Elizabeth and I've been seeing her ever since. (laughs) So that's been super helpful. Um, but the yeah, so this time I was different. I wasn't as scared because I knew I could be a mother and I knew that I could get my mental health under control and that bonding wouldn't be an issue. Um, so this time I did struggle physically though. So I did get depressed because unfortunately I got really bad pelvic girdle pain and it was so severe. I was on crutches from halfway through the pregnancy. I had to stop work even though I was working from home I couldn't sit at the computer um and that really affected my mood too so although I was I had plans in place and I was ready for this pregnancy and I was more excited this time um yeah things yeah. happen and you can't control them um yeah, yeah. <laughs> how are you feeling now how what are you doing to take care of yourself these days so lots of video calls to family definitely um Still seeing my psychologist. She's fantastic. Still taking my medication. (laughs) And the biggest thing that I did, especially while I was pregnant, was mindfulness. And um, I really love the Headspace app, actually, for mindfulness exercises. Because what I had to do was I, I came to the conclusion, well, along with the doctors who couldn't do anything for me, that I couldn't change the pain that I was in. All I could do was change my attitude towards the pain. And I did succeed to a certain extent <laughs> in doing that with the with the assistance of those meditations. So um, I have become a lot better at accepting what I can't change and not fighting my body whether it's the vomiting or whether it's the pain um, because it's taken me a long time to recover from that um, from the pregnancy as well constantly still seeing physios about it so just yeah accepting when there's things that I can do and when there's things that I can't do just working on accepting that and not getting so frustrated that my body's not doing what I want it to do. Dr. Rochelle Hine has lived and worked in regional Victoria for decades as a social worker and mental health professional. Her research into the challenges regional parents face is informed by her everyday experiences of the people in her community. 
Becoming a new parent can be isolating at the best of times. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about how this plays out for women outside the city? And I know for women who have um, mental health challenges, there is a lot of isolation. Um, sometimes they might not conform to the expectations and um, um, the normal cultural roles that, that small communities expect of women. And so that can be really difficult that sometimes people, you know, often it is trauma and childhood adversity that leads to mental health challenges. So there can also be estrangement from their own family of birth as well. So that's that's extremely challenging. And I think, you know, we know that parenting is a really difficult, really difficult, but there's this kind of perception that it's it's a joyous time and that, you know, it's natural and we should all be able to, you know, make that transition really easily. And if we don't talk about how hard it is, then uh, people will assume that everyone else is doing it easier than I am and, you know, there's something wrong with me. And so I, I just really encourage um, people who have mental health challenges and everyone really to talk about the difficult times uh, and to share the struggles and to ask for help when you need it from, you know, neighbours, friends, um, services. You can, a, a good place to start is your GP sometimes. Would you say mental health is looked upon any differently when you live outside the city? I know there can sometimes be that sort of, you know, tough it out mentality. Do you find that out where you're living? There are a lot of, of barriers and that might be one. That would be particularly... Um, be an issue, I think, um, for some fathers as well. Like uh, I think in rural communities, obviously, um, there's a great diversity of, of people from different backgrounds, but often there's a sort of an underlying, um, yeah, she'll be right kind of culture. Um, help seeking, particularly amongst men, is is not so well known for mental health issues in rural areas and remote areas. But I think that really is changing. There are a lot of initiatives now and sport, even sporting clubs are uh, promoting the need to address and talk about mental health issues. And that's what we need to do everywhere, I think, is have those really brave conversations, courageous conversations about things that are difficult and challenging in life. Because if if we don't talk about it, it can look like individuals can think that they're the only ones experiencing these challenges. And so, you know, we need to normalise and validate the experience of um, the challenges of parenting, it is really difficult, you know, and there are other, so many other pressures that compound uh, lack of sleep and a total transformation and transition to a, a new role and identity as a parent. Um, so some of the other barriers, though, can be uh, a lack of anonymity. So, you know, people know each other in small communities and it could be that there's a relative or a friend or a neighbour who works at your mental health service and, you know, for privacy reasons, you might not want to disclose that that you have um, mental health challenges at the time. And I know for First Nations people, those issues are, are compounded further because the communities are that much smaller and more intimate. There can be barriers, um, financial barriers as well. So... We do have some public mental health services, but we also have lots of private practitioners. And even with the Medicare rebate, there is still a large gap. So that service is not accessible to everyone. And transport can be a barrier to for people who are living remotely or who don't have their own private transport because 
public transport in rural areas. We have a great train service, but if you need to go from small um, towns into you know places and where the, there isn't a train line, uh, that that can be incredibly difficult to access. We don't have Uber. No, that's a luxury that we do have in the city. Um, access to the right medical care can quickly become an issue if you need to cover a huge distance, say, to get to a specialist. And when you're pregnant, you're assessed for a whole bunch of risk factors, which might require you to get to a doctor more frequently. How does that play out, do you think, in regional areas? Yeah, I think I think that imp- impacts on different uh, populations differently, I guess. You know, there, there are some families that will have adequate financial and social resources that, that it will be less difficult for them to to get that specialised care. But what we know is that that risk categorisation is applied to people in ways that aren't necessarily equal. So, uh, for example, First Nations women um, will often be uh, labelled as high risk. So uh, just being First Nations, regardless of all the other factors, um, that might be involved in life can lead to to women being labelled as being high risk, and that can lead to a cascade of medical interventions, um, lots of surveillance, and sometimes women find that even though they're monitored more more frequently, they're not necessarily receiving the support that they need, and necessitating travel away from their communities actually leaves them more isolated with less resources to draw on in that um, highly stressful time um, during pregnancy. Uh, This is also a factor for women who have a pre-existing psychiatric diagnosis. So women with a a diagnosed mental illness will often be categorised as high risk as well. And so the same sort of situation that Often the high-risk label um, leads to more physical monitoring of, of the baby, but it might actually be that, that what they need is more psychological, emotional and practical support, and that doesn't necessarily lead from a high-risk label. So it's a bit of a mismatch sometimes. So we need to be looking at in individual women and their own strengths, through strength lens, their strengths their resources, their own priorities and needs and be making decisions on their care based on that rather than a a very blunt uh, risk assessment tool. So for perinatal mental health challenges where there are specialist services like mother-baby units, is there a way to get this level of support to people outside urban settings? Um, So mother and baby units can be a a great space for for women who are struggling and um, provide really specialised and intensive care and support um, and develop strategies for um, that early parenting and overcoming some of those challenges with the baby that that, um, lead to women thriving once they go home. But some of the preventative measures that we need to also put in place are around looking at um, providing support for women when they're pregnant, actually, and having some in-depth conversations at that phase about uh, what to expect, what the what the family's expectations are about what changes will take place once the baby arrives, because we know that women are incredibly um, filled with hope and motivation for making positive change when they are pregnant. So it's a real time where we can we can model um, positive relationships. We can develop connectedness skills and capacity in women that, that have had um, adversity in their past. And uh, we can 
support them to think realistically about what what it, what they're going to need after the baby arrives and what their resources and supports are so that they're well prepared when after the birth. Rochelle, there's obviously a difference between people who are living regionally where, say, there is a hospital not too far away or, you know, might even be a, a GP or perhaps a psychologist in the town compared to someone who might be living way out in the country in a more rural setting. What do you see as other differences between accessing care in those two settings? Obviously, in a remote setting, um, physical isolation is is more going to be more of an issue and and getting access to services. So um, people can need to drive long distances and then that needs to be justified, doesn't it? And, you know, every, a lot of people are struggling financially at the moment. So often people in remote communities or re- remote areas will delay or defer um, seeking help because it's, you know, going to pl- place a burden on their family. It will mean they're away from the home for hours. It will mean petrol costs and those sort of things are difficult to navigate for some families. I know that some women who live um, on remote properties do actually use uh, online options and have found them to be really useful. I know one woman that I interviewed who lived on a remote um, property in the Rivlands region was talking about um, having a great support network of women that she'd met through a blog, an online blog, and she saw those um, women as her community, really. Uh, And, yeah, so I think there's financial barriers, there's travel and um, transport barriers, and... It's going to be a lot further to get that specialised care as well. Um, but I know that remote communities are really innovative and creative and they do find lots of different ways to support their residents as well. And there can be um, lots of um, social connection and um, an activity that could be around sporting clubs or, um, or other community events. That's such a great point. I guess no matter where you're living, you can get online and look for opportunities wherever you can to connect with the local community. What would you say are some of the options available to people who are finding it tough to find a parents group? What do you think they can do if they're struggling with their own mental health? Yeah, I think I think the GP and, and um, maternal and child health nurse would be the first port of call, those universal services that we all turn to. And so there might be um, a support worker, a social worker or a wellbeing team at your child's school or it could be an early years educator who might be able to help you and put you in touch with with um, someone in your local community. Sometimes um, neighbourhoods have community houses or neighbourhood houses and they can be a good place for social connection as well and support because uh, I think um, it's really important not only to be uh, socialising and connecting with other parents, but it could be cross-generational support. You know, it might be that there could be a neighbour who's a who's a grandparent, but her their grandchildren live in overseas somewhere. I know in my street there's a number of, of older residents who um who provide a lot of support to to others in the street, which is good lovely to see. Rochelle, what would be your message to someone who might be listening who is struggling at the moment with their own mental health? Perhaps they're a new mother or father and they don't know what to do or where to turn to for support. Yeah, I think um, I think firstly, you know, know that you're not alone, that lots of new parents struggle and, you know, I'm sure you're doing a great job and I think don't be afraid to ask for help to put your hand up. Um, we all need to do that 
at, at some point. I've had to do that myself at different points of time with my children too. And uh, if there is a, a um, health professional that you have a connection with, then, you know, it could, maybe it's them that you talk to first, no matter what which field they're in. Um, and it might be that you're, you know, struggling with work as well. Like um, lots of lots of women are juggling early parenting and work too. So um, lots of workplaces have EAP programs for, for support um, for their employees and their family members as well. So through your, through your own or your partner's workplace, you might be able to seek support there. It's so important to have that community around you, no matter how far away they are. For Adelaide, being able to tell the people close to her how she was really feeling was a game changer. I, I definitely catastrophized what was going to happen in my head. You know, I thought that my friendships would never be the same again. And it definitely didn't turn out that way. And when I told my friends what I was feeling, you know, they reassured me and they were there for me. You know, they all wanted to be there for me and they were all there for me with my second pregnancy when I couldn't do things physically. So your friends want to help, um, your family want to help. So just ask for what you need. Um, and also mums groups online. I have made a lot of new mums friends in Bendigo because everyone is feeling the same way. Lots of people have mums groups that didn't work out or they've moved from a different area and they don't have a mums group. So um, yeah, I'm actually admin now on a page that does that and we organise events and I've met lots of new friends that way. So Thank you so much for sharing Adelaide. Now to the good stuff. What's the most joyful part of parenting for you? Baby giggles. <laughs> I cannot get enough of baby giggles. So my poor Edward gets tickled every day till he's hysterical <laughs> because it just brings me so much joy. <laughs> Survive and Thrive is a podcast from Panda, Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Australia, an accredited mental health service. You'll find all the links and information you need in the episode notes wherever you're listening. But just a reminder, if you are a new or expecting parent, you can call Panda's free national helpline from Monday to Saturday on 1300 726 306. If you're experiencing a mental health crisis, call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you're in a life-threatening emergency, call 000. The experts featured on this Survive and Thrive podcast are not Panda clinicians, but valued partners. Any opinions and advice is their own and not representing Panda. Panda recognises the individual and collective contributions of people with a lived or living experience of mental health issues, their families, loved ones and supporters. Every story informs how we care for people and their community. Survive and Thrive is produced by Deadset Studios for Panda, Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Australia. Don't forget there are lots more episodes in your podcast feed, so hit follow in your favourite podcast app.